I was reminded of a saying by Winston Churchill. You're probably familiar with this expression. When he said that those who fail to learn from history, or those who do fail to learn from history, are doomed to repeat it. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity to learn a bit of history. And it's to learn a bit of history so that certainly we do not repeat it, at least this particular history. We do not repeat it in our lives. And so that we can help prevent others from making the same mistakes and falling into the same dangers. The history we're going to look at this morning is the history of the Pharisees. And we'll observe the dangers of following the Pharisees. Now, this won't be exhaustive. We're not going to do a deep dive into every little facet of the Pharisees, the clothing they wore, the daily regimen. But we are going to learn a few interesting, perhaps disturbing, facts about the Pharisees. Now, you may say, I'm not really in any danger this morning of following the Pharisees. I'm not even sure a Pharisee exists today. You're partly right. The religious class of Pharisees have long since passed away, somewhere around 70, 73 A.D. But the spirit of the Pharisees lives on. In fact, it existed before the Pharisees ever came into existence. And so it survives today. And as we read the passage and study this morning, we are going to see, and we'll try to see, if we can't identify the modern-day Pharisees and the attitude or the spirit of the Pharisees that might be a danger to our lives today and to those around us. Now, normally I would say, read along with me, but before we begin reading here in Matthew chapter 23, I, I need to make a comment. Because I know that we have several different Bible translations out there, and that's wonderful. I'm thankful for God's work in that. And if you have the New American Standard, the New King James, or Legacy Standard, you likely have brackets around verse 14 and a note in the margin of the footnote. Don't read that yet. Pay attention to me. <laughs> if you have the English Standard or the NIV, then you realize that they left out verse 14. Now, they weren't getting fast and loose with Scripture. They weren't just cutting verses willy-nilly. There's a reason for it. It's a reason for this oddity, and it's because several later manuscripts include verse 14 here, although sometimes it's placed before verse 13 in those, early, in those manuscripts instead of after it. When the King James Version was written in the 1600s, they only had access to these later manuscripts. So it's been a part of the English Bible for a long time. But as time went on and as archaeology took place, as more and more of the early manuscripts were discovered and uncovered and translated, we found that they didn't have verse 14 here. So where did it come from? I'm glad you asked. As the later copyists were making copies of Matthew's original gospel, they were very familiar with their Bible. They were very familiar with the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. And this verse, verse 14, appears in both Mark 1240 and in Luke 2047. These are actual words of Jesus. It's an actual woe in the midst of a bunch of woes that take place. And in both Mark 12 and Luke 20, the context is very, very similar. Where Jesus was describing these Pharisees or these religious leaders who wear their long tassels. They love to be greeted with great honor in the marketplace. They want to be seated at the chief seats. 
very similar to the context and what we looked at last week in the Gospel of Matthew. And so as a result, as these later writers or copyists, as they were copying the Gospel of Matthew and writing here, this verse jumped to mind and it, they inserted it. Sometimes where you see verse 12 or between 12 and 13, sometimes between what is 13 and 15. And that's why we have our verse 14. And you've probably done something similar where you're copying something, something you may have seen number of different, a number of times and something very similar jumps to mind. And before you know it, you've inserted a word or a phrase that fits right along with it. And that, that's what happened. These words were certainly spoken by Jesus, no doubt about that. It was just that they were not originally included in Matthew's gospel. So these are real words of Jesus, but they are not part of Matthew's gospel here. And there's a technical term for it. It's called an interpolation, and it's where it was inserted. Again, true words, really spoken by Jesus, just not part of Matthew's original gospel. What this means for our study this morning is that I'm not going to read or comment on verse 14. That's because I believe Matthew recorded here seven, as we'll talk about them, woes. Not woe as in a horse, but W-O-E. And I want to keep it to those seven. I think there's a reason for those seven. So with that rather lengthy technical introduction, let's begin reading together in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctify the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctified the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this text this morning, contains these warnings, these condemnations of the Pharisees, I pray that you would help us to learn from this history, that we would not fall prey to this spirit, this attitude, this practice of the Pharisees, that we would take these warnings to heart and that we would walk in a way that pleases you, that we would grow and deepen our love for you. In your name, amen. Last week, our study of Matthew's gospel panned in on Jesus' teaching on how to love our neighbor. And he did this by both pointing out the unloving action of the religious leaders and by positively calling on us to become servants of one another, setting the example of Christ really is the greatest of all servants. We took an intermission this week, but there was no break that day. Without missing a beat, 
Jesus turns and begins to directly address the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. And now it's the crowds and the disciples' turn to look on. Jesus had been talking about them in verses 1 through 12 in the third person. And I would imagine if you were one of those religious leaders, you would have been getting pretty irritated at this point. Because he had been demonstrating how hateful, how wicked your actions toward others, toward your neighbors had been. How you had been violating the second greatest commandment. And by violating the second greatest commandment, proving that you were violating the first and the greatest of commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Well, now he turns to them. And he addresses them in that second person, you. And verse 13 opens with the first of seven woes. Now, a woe, W-O-E, is a word we don't use as often anymore. And since we don't use it too often, and it's repeated seven times in this overall passage, three times in the text we're looking at this morning, it's probably helpful that we define it. A woe is used either, one, and this is probably its minor usage, to express concern. It's similar to saying, oh no, or the older English, alas. But there's a second meaning. It's really the more frequent usage. And it expresses extreme displeasure and pending judgment. It's what one sibling says to the other when they do something wrong and they know they're going to get in trouble. Woe are you when mom and dad find out. And you can see some of these usages in Habakkuk 2 and Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah and many other places. You see these woes and there's a history of this judgmental condemnation that accompanies these woes in the Old Testament. Most frequently, they're directed against the spiritual leadership of Israel, just like we have in our context in Matthew 23 this morning. So this morning, as we look at the first of seven woes directed against the Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, we're going to learn a series of lessons. And really, we might call these lessons warnings. Warnings from woes, you might say. Warnings against following the Pharisees. And the first warning is there in verse 13, and it's a warning against hiding and disguising the kingdom of God, or preventing persons from entering. Verse 13 provides a woe of judgment against the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites because they shut off the kingdom of heaven. They shut it off from others, and they do their best to prevent others from entering in. I think sometimes it's active, sometimes it's more passive. It's become a very habit. It's their false religion, their false sense of worship. They're now shutting it off, their practices. And there's really two ways that come to mind, and it's there in that title of hiding and disguising. Those are the two ways that come to mind when I think about how the Pharisees do this, how they might prevent others from entering the kingdom of heaven. In hiding the kingdom, the Pharisees would not focus on what the kingdom of God was really comprised of. They did not focus on the love of God, but instead they focused on creating these long list of rules that must be kept. They would talk about creating a hedge around the law or a fence around the law. In other words, they didn't want anybody to get close to violating the law, so they created a whole new set of regulations that you now had to follow. The problem was they were now man-made rules. They had the appearance of wisdom, but they lacked any spiritual substance. 
And they were preoccupied with these rules. And they measured their greatness by their ability to keep these long lists of rules and show off their personal righteousness. Well, in identifying how this is a danger for us today, maybe we ask, what does it look like? What would this look like today? Well, for one, it would be the legalism that we discussed last week as we defined it. Legalism that burdens persons and keeps them from seeing the love of God, that focuses more on the rules than on the love of God. Another way someone might hide the kingdom is to preach a different gospel, a different message. It would mean not preaching about sin and judgment and hell and the forgiveness and the love of Christ. And if you don't preach about those things, what are you really doing? You're making God, the kingdom of God, completely irrelevant. They're not even needed. If there is no sin, if there is no judgment, there is no responsibility, then there's no need for a Savior. There's no God to whom I am accountable. And I think some of these Pharisees at Jesus' time, I think some of those who practice this today, do it sincerely and genuinely. They think they are doing the right thing. Perhaps they themselves have not heard or understood the message of the gospel. And so they do this. But understand that there are many genuine and sincere people who are going to hell. Without repentance of sins, without the forgiveness of Christ, there is no salvation and it dishonors God. The other way the Pharisees kept persons from the kingdom was by by disguising the kingdom. They hid it from view by making it look like something else. They made it into an earthly kingdom. They expected a Messiah. They expected a Savior, but they had misunderstood and misinterpreted what that would look like. They had their own set of ideas about what the kingdom should look like, and it was all temporal and earthly. Their attention was on the here and now. They were more concerned about their own accumulation of honor, of power, and wealth. Their messages were more about keeping people subjugated than helping them. They didn't want to help them learn about God. They didn't help them understand that there is a God who loved them. As Jesus reminds us when he began his ministry in Matthew 4.17, the kingdom, the message of the kingdom begins with the message of repentance. And repentance is not just stopping something. It's not just turning away from something. It's turning towards something else. And that's what they were missing. They were great at telling you, stop doing this, stop doing that. But it's then turning the attention to God and explaining and expressing the love of God. Parents, I think we're in danger of doing this sometimes with our children. We want children that act rightly. We don't like to be embarrassed by our children when we go out, right? When they misbehave or do something wrong. And so we're really good at correcting what they do wrong, but... Are we taking the time to make sure that we show greater care, greater concern about them seeing the love of God, the love of Christ, that the reason and the motivation behind why it is that we want to restrain their sin, that needs to be a major emphasis for us as parents. And by the way, I don't always do that well, just in case you thought I had it all together. Yes, my children, just in case you think I'm lying. The Pharisees, however, found ways of hiding God from the people by disguising what the kingdom of God really was. There's other ways it's exemplified today in our age. 
try to make the kingdom of God about this earth, disguising it as an earthly or temporal kingdom. We do the same thing, just to looks a little differently. We define it a little differently. We don't focus on the knowledge of God. We don't focus on the love of God. We might set our hope on the here and the now. We get preoccupied with creating a temporal kingdom. We might present a message focused primarily on social issues. Again, as we talked about last week, we are to be, we are to look out for our neighbor, to care for them, to show great love for them. But when that becomes the primary purpose, and we begin to use our definition of what that looks like, there's a danger. Or we have a message focused more on living my best life now, never talking about sin that offends a holy God, like we sang about this morning. This type of message ignores or disguises the kingdom. It makes the kingdom of God more about this world and the issues of this world and this age. As Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, store up your treasures in heaven. So whether from hiding or disguising, modern-day Pharisees keep persons from the kingdom of God, and they keep people from learning about God, about His character, and who He truly is. Reminds me of what the Old Testament prophet Hosea wrote in Hosea 4.6, when God was again there proclaiming judgment against the spiritual leaders of Israel. He said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. They've rejected knowledge. They've stopped teaching the knowledge of God, the love of God. That's what he says in Hosea 6.6. It's the love of God and the knowledge of God. Because they've rejected it and stopped teaching it, condemnation has come. It's come across the whole land, but it begins with the religious leaders. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Well, verse 15 provides us a second warning. And it's related to verse 13 and what we see there. And it warns us of creating or the danger of creating a false system of worship. That's what the Pharisees had done. Verse 15 presents the Pharisees as missionaries. We see a reference to travel by land and by sea. It's a figure of speech used for long and arduous travel. It would have usually been foreign travel to some distant land. And you've got to remember, travel was not easy. It was not quick. It was difficult and it was dangerous. And it took a great deal of time. It was often very costly as well. But these weren't missionaries the way we might think about missionaries. They weren't out there encouraging persons to follow the God of the Old Testament. They weren't out there preaching the love of God. They were trying to make more Pharisaical converts. They wanted more Pharisees. They wanted little Pharisees. They wanted persons who would follow every rule and law that they had created, that broader hedge that they had established. They wanted those who would carry it on after them, all of their interpretations their legalistic rules and additions to the Old Testament and have a semblance of wisdom again, but lack any spiritual substance. They were most likely going to synagogues of the Jews throughout the world. You see, the Jews didn't really associate with Gentiles, and a good Pharisee would spend as little time with a Gentile as possible. So it wasn't like they were going throughout the whole world, reaching out to all the Gentiles. No, they were going to all of the synagogues that had been spread out through what was called the diaspora. And they would go to these synagogues and they would show up and they would begin teaching for a period of time. 
working to convert the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who had become a part of the synagogue to adopt their pharisaical ways and their interpretations of Scripture. And there in verse 15, what do we see? When one becomes a proselyte, he becomes twice as much a son of hell as themselves. Now, is this just simple hyperbole or is there something to this? I think there's a reality that when a new believer, a proselyte, when they join the, the new way, they tend to be very zealous, by and large. Even more zealous than those who came before. You know, 15 to 20 years ago, there was what was called the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. It was a resurgence of the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of the Reformation. And don't get me wrong, there were some very good things that came out of that and the renewed appreciation and attention to the doctrines of grace. But one thing that was lacking in almost, well, I wouldn't say almost all, but in many of these new converts to the doctrines of grace was grace, oddly enough. They were zealous, they were assertive, sometimes a bit rabid, ready to argue any point, debate you, until you simply wanted to give up out of sheer exhaustion. And that's somewhat typical. That's what it looks like when someone learns something new and they get excited about it. They become even more zealous for it. The problem is, these new converts are more zealous about a false religion. And as a result, they become twice a son of hell as those who came before. The problem with the religious system of the Pharisees, as we saw last week, is that it denies the character and nature of the God of the Bible. So they're seeking out converts to their false way. They're using his name, they're using his word, but they're using it to burden and lock people up in a legalistic religion that prevents persons from entering the kingdom of God. And the same temptation exists today. Modern-day Pharisees still seek to burden people, people with rules and man-made religion. The modern-day Pharisee is more interested in converting persons to their point of view than teaching persons about the knowledge and love of Christ. As we've talked about, obedience and sanctification are very important. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But they must always be governed by a love for God and a love for Christ. The Pharisees stood in a unique role. They were the interpreters of the Scripture for others. And in their case, they had gone seriously astray, leading others astray from the kingdom of God. And so there's also a special warning for any who would be a Christian teacher or preacher who take the role of studying, of explaining, of expounding scriptures. And as such, we should take heed. We should remember the words of James or Jesus' half-brother James who said in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a greater judgment. So we have the warning of creating a false religious system. We have the woe of warning about hiding and disguising the kingdom. In verses 16 through 22, it's the larger chunk, we have the woe of warning against misplaced priorities. The woe of verse 16 introduces the third warning here. And it's a warning against these misunderstood, misapplied priorities. And Jesus uses an illustration to 
present this warning, uh, this condemnation, if you will. And he illustrates it by talking about their habit, their practice of promises or vows. And it presents a people whose priorities are really out of place. Uh, These people are finding ways to break promises, creative ways to get out of them, get out of commitments. And simultaneously, they are legitimizing, they are binding promises in a really bizarre fashion. You see, there's a background behind the oaths and the promises and the taking of oaths in Israel. You may remember, we've discussed this once or twice in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's only been three years. I don't know why you wouldn't remember all of this. But we had discussed in chapter 15 and earlier a concept called Corban. Corban is, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word or the Aramaic term. It was a description of things that are dedicated to the temple. If it is dedicated to the temple, it falls under Corban. And the religious leaders would use this practice they had created, this practice of Corban, to really fleece the sheep, to steal from the people, to fill their pockets and their coffers by guilting them into dedicating to God everything they had while simultaneously impoverishing their own family and extended family. It's what helped them amass their wealth and their power. Because once they had all the money, now the people became really dependent upon them. And Jesus calls out this wicked practice in Matthew 15, 3 through 9. What they did is they made what you dedicated to the temple more important than caring for others. They wanted you to quickly dedicate everything you had to the temple. They made property more important than persons. And this dedication, this act of Corbin, was done through vows. But since vows were sometimes made hastily, including by some of the Pharisees, they realized they needed to make some exceptions on whether the vow or the promise was really binding. It's like a child who says, I had my fingers crossed, it didn't count. That's why Jesus dealt with this, and that's what he was dealing with in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, that culminates in, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop with this nonsense. If you say something, mean it. Say what you mean, mean what you say. And Jesus uses this, this practice of Corbin and all that was going on to expose how completely out of balance their whole spiritual barometer is. They can't even recognize what is really important, what is really holy. For the Pharisees, if you made a vow and a commitment and say, I vow upon the temple, well, you could break that promise. But if you said, I made a vow upon the gold that's on the handle of that third door of the temple, well, that's binding because the temple sanctified the gold. So the gold is now binding. It was bizarre. It was weird. Likewise, as you see here, similarly with the altar. You could say, I, I vow by the altar. Well, that's a, that's a vow and a promise you can break. But if you vow by a sacrifice of the altar, well, now you're bound and you can never break that. Because the altar made the sacrifice holy. And Jesus exposes how absolutely ridiculous this is. His counter-argument is that if the altar makes the gift holy, if the temple makes the gold holy, and not vice versa, then it's the temple and the altar that are of the greater importance, that are the greater things. 
But see, he wasn't interested in, in correcting their understanding of Corbin and saying, okay, now we do it this way. No, he's, he's eviscerating and he's undermining. He's using this illustratively to show how out of sync their priorities were, how far this false religion, religious system had gone in confusing priorities and enslaving the people. Jesus' main point is not about oaths. It's about misplaced priorities. Because at the end of the day, whatever you say or do will be judged by God. If you make a promise, if you commit to something, you are making a promise before God and He expects you to fulfill it. So as we saw in our scripture reading this morning from Ecclesiastes 5, be careful what you say. It's better to remain silent than make a promise you might not be able to keep. Verse 22 teaches that everything that is done, but especially what we say, brings us before the throne of God himself. Grady reminded us this morning, we have instantaneous access to the throne of God. And that's for our benefit. But that also means that God is watching everything we do and everything we say. That's the ultimate point of these verses. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 through 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, the modern day spirit of the Pharisee does not consider that God cares about every word that is spoken. The modern day Pharisee will walk or talk one way in the church, another way in the world. The spirit of the Pharisee plays fast and loose with the truth, finds ways to reinvent what was meant, to excuse what was said. And sadly, we see it all the time from our political leaders. The last place we should expect to find it is among our spiritual leaders. But this is not just for leaders of the church. It's for all followers of Jesus Christ. And the question for you is this. For you and for me, do I speak and talk and walk with an awareness that God will ask me to give an account for it one day? That I am under his rule and that he cares about everything I say and do. Because for the Pharisees of Jesus' day, only certain things mattered to God. Other things he didn't care about. Children, let me ask you this. Are you careful about how you speak to your parents, to your teachers, to your friends? Here's one that might be hard to hear. Are you careful about how you speak to your brothers and your sisters? Do you realize that God cares very, very much about what you say and how you speak to them? Guard your words carefully. Remember that God sees and hears all that we say and do. We can read lists, list of woes and be quick to point out the sin and the mistakes of the Pharisees and scribes, and there are many and plenty to point out. But I think we're all in danger of falling into the same errors, or at least the same type of errors when we focus more on precision than on love for people, 
when we look for perfection instead of practicing patience. We're more interested in winning theological debates than exploring and delighting in scriptures together and in the love of Christ. When we do those things, we are in danger of imitating these Pharisees and inviting God's judgment upon us. Even as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can incur judgment. It's not the judgment of hell, praise the Lord, but it does invoke the displeasure of God. James, as we've already noted, says that teachers especially incur a stricter judgment. Peter in 1 Peter 1 talks about the judgment of God that comes upon believers. And so we must be careful about how we act and how we walk. Take the warning of these Pharisees to heart so that you do not walk in their ways. Unless we be guilty of shutting the kingdom, I want to make the gospel very clear this morning. It's very easy to want to bring something to the gospel or to think that I must do something to earn God's favor. You can do nothing to earn God's favor. We are completely tainted by our sin. Every good thing I do, as Isaiah tells us, is filthy rags. Titus makes it clear that it is the carnality of our mind that affects everything we try to do, no matter how good it may look. What makes it good is the motivation behind it. And the motivation can't be horizontal. The motivation has to be vertical. My motivation for what I do has to be out of a love for God. If you are here this morning and you have not repented of your sins, you are living under the weight of trying to please God, then turn to Him. Cry out to Him. Ask for His mercy. As we've said so many times before, there are none he will turn away. He delights to hear you call out for him and to rely upon him, to throw yourself at his feet. And as you experience the joy of that salvation, the joy that David, the psalmist, talks about, your love for God will grow. Your love for Christ will grow. And as a result, you will delight to do things that please him, that bring him joy, that help you to love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these woes of warning. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in light of your love. Father, to work on sanctifying, on holding one another accountable, to stimulating one another to love and good deeds, but all out of a motivation and a response to the love you've expressed to us. Father, in how we talk with one another, with our children, with our co-workers, with our friends, with our neighbors, would we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be clothed in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that as we share the gospel, as we live in this world, that your kingdom would truly grow, that we would never be guilty of shutting the door to the kingdom, of hiding the kingdom, of disguising the kingdom to others through how we live or how we speak. In your name.